You can support The Historian's podcast through our GoFundMe campaign. Click the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. I'm Tom Flynn from the Center for Inquiry. Today we're going to talk about Central New York's often forgotten heritage of radical social reform. We're going to take a trip along the Freethought Trail. This is The Historian's podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Tom Flynn is the Center for Inquiry's Vice President for Media and Director of Inquiry Media Productions. The organization is located in Amherst, New York, near Buffalo. Tom Flynn is also Executive Director of the Council for Secular Humanism and editor of its magazine, Free Inquiry. He designed and directs a museum at the Dresden, New York birthplace of 19th century agnostic orator Robert Greene Ingersoll. Tom Flynn has written or edited eight books, including The New Encyclopedia of Unbelief. I must say you sound like a very interesting person, and I think that this first question has to do with one of the stops on the free thought trail uh, that I just mentioned. Who was Robert Greene Ingersoll. Robert Greene Ingersoll was an attorney, a Civil War hero, and the most popular and controversial American orator back in the golden age of American oratory. Uh, He toured the country for over 30 years, packing the largest theaters of the day on topics from politics to the arts to science to, very often, uh, his views on religion. Uh, Ingersoll was an agnostic. He thought that the uh, Christian doctrine of eternal punishment was uh, absolutely perverse, and he became an enormous celebrity in post-Civil War America, going around the country and saying so every chance he got. Uh, He died in 1899, and uh, religious influences were pretty successful in driving his memory underground. Now we call him the the, uh, most uh, uh, interesting American that most people never heard of. Hmm. uh, And the one thing I gathered from your uh, material was that his father was a minister, right? Yes, his father, John Ingersoll, was uh, a minister. He was a radical in his own way. He was an abolitionist in the early years of the 19th century when that was very much a minority persuasion, even in the North. And uh, so John Ingersoll was deeply believing, but very much a social radical. And uh, I think the social radical part of that kind of rubbed off onto his son, Robert. Uh, Now, people may be curious about the term free thought. It's a term that was well-known back in Ingersoll's times. Free thought, one word, means thinking freely and following the evidence wherever it leads, particularly in matters of religion. So most of the atheists and agnostics of the time, including Ingersoll, uh, called themselves free thinkers. But what's the difference between an atheist and an agnostic? An agnostic doesn't know one way or the other uh, whether God exists. Uh, the agnostic believes there isn't enough evidence to form a belief. Uh, the atheist believes that Uh, There is sufficient evidence, and the evidence suggests that there isn't a God in a supernatural order. Uh, Now, atheists aren't aren't necessarily certain that there's no God. 
Uh, but at the very least, an atheist thinks there isn't sufficient evidence to believe in a god. The free thought trail you mentioned goes through central uh, New York. And let's stick with the Ingersoll for a moment. He was born in Dresden, which is a little village uh, on Seneca Lake, I believe. Um, what, what do you find when you get there in connection with the Ingersoll? Well, Dresden has a population of 300, which was almost exactly its population in 1833. As you're coming down Route 14, which is one of the principal winery routes on the west shore of Seneca Lake, there's a flashing yellow light. You turn towards the lake, and that turns out to be the main street of this picturesque little village. And right across from the tiny post office in the center of town is this two-story frame house, which is where Ingersoll was born. Uh, it was the parsonage. His father, the minister, was preaching at a Congregationalist church in Dresden back then. And basically, the birthplace has stood as a museum on and off ever since 1921. Uh, the organization I represent uh, restored it for the third time, and we've had it continuously open to the public since 1993, uh, except for last year and early this spring because of the pandemic. Ah, so you can go visit it now, right? Or can you? Yes, we uh, we reopened Independence Day weekend, so we're open Saturdays and Sundays from noon to 5. And, of course, the Free Thought Trail is available online 24-7. You can check that out at freethought-trail.org. For example, Robert Green Ingersoll's not buried there in Dresden. He was buried, right, at Arlington National Cemetery because of uh, his service in the Civil War? That's correct. Uh, actually, the... Uh, the Ingersoll family left Dresden before baby Robert was a year old. Ingersoll came into his adulthood in Peoria, where he raised the Civil War Regiment, which he commanded as colonel. And in recognition of that service, he's buried in Arlington. Reverend Ingersoll is buried in Peoria. The most interesting uh, story, perhaps, and one of our recent exploits on the Freethought Trail. When Ingersoll was three years old, his mother died in Casanova, New York. Mm -hmm. And for over a century, no one knew where she was buried. I made contact with some people in the local historical community in Casanova and made known that we were interested in trying to find Mrs. Ingersoll's whereabouts. And one day I get a phone call, and uh, uh, the local historian, uh, Sarah Chivaco, uh, had been looking through some old drawings in one of the cemeteries in town. And in a 1950 redrawing of uh, the plot map of the small cemetery, there was a margin note saying that uh, Ingersoll's mother was believed to be buried in the Myrick plot. Now, that would have been Luther Myrick, who was a locally prominent abolitionist minister at the same time that Ingersoll's father, also an abolitionist minister, was serving in Casanova. So we presume that when Mrs. Ingersoll died, Reverend Ingersoll, it was a very junior minister, was too poor to give her a, a proper burial. So Reverend Myrick stepped up to his abolitionist colleague and said, you can bury your wife in on my plot, hmm. uh, which he did. There was no money for a headstone. You know, her burial place went completely unknown until about 2014. Uh, when this finding came up, the uh, 
local historian reached out to some other people in the local government community. A contractor donated the use of some ground-penetrating radar. The Myrick plot was sold with space for eight burials. It contained only three headstones. Quite the intriguing target for the uh, ground-penetrating radar, and sure enough, they found an, uh, an unmarked burial. So on Memorial Day 2014, we dedicated the first headstone that had ever marked her grave. Now, if you're in Casanova and you want to uh, uh, check it out, it's called the Town Cemetery. It's on Number 9 Road, about two miles south of the village of Casanova. And Mm. it's now owned and operated by the town. We were kind of proud of that, that after, uh, after 181 years, to be exact, uh, Ingersoll's mother finally has a proper grave marking. Well, that does sound good. And it, would it be correct to assume that her um, burial place was kind of anonymous because of the same uh, animus that was against her son uh, and his agnosticism? No, I would doubt that. I, I think it was probably just a matter of money. I mean, the the yeah. Ingersolls were desperately poor. Uh, uh, John John Ingersoll liked to preach about two things, uh, fire and brimstone and abolition. And he tended to serve about a year in a church and get let go and find a vocation somewhere else. So he, uh, you know, during this period of his life, he was desperately poor. Hmm. So, but now you have the uh, grave of Robert Ingersoll's mother as part of the Free Thought Trail right? Is that it's on your correct. trail? Okay. Um, and w- let's branch out on the free thought trail. You say it's in, in central New York. Uh, maybe can you uh, wax uh, eloquent as, as you are in this interview, I think, uh, and, and tell us, what, what do you mean by central New York? Basically, we think of that as stretching from Rochester on the west to uh, uh, Utica on the east, uh, and actually extending as far as Rome. Within that area and you know, anywhere north and south from the Pennsylvania line to Lake Ontario, we have 185 sites, uh, some of them marked, many of them unmarked, uh, that are important to the history of radical reform in the region. And radical reform covers everything from free thought, of course, uh, abolitionism, uh, women's suffrage campaigning, Dress reform, uh, even the uh, uh, the uh, utopian fad that swept the country in the early 1840s uh, uh, to to build communes. There were two vaguely free-thinking communes in the region, and so we cover we cover all of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, the information's all available online. Again, some of the sites are working museums, some of the sites have historical markers, and a great many of them are totally unmarked, so when you visit, you'll be the only person there who knows why you're there. (laughs) Okay. Well, and maybe I should ask, why did uh, the Center for Inquiry want to create uh, this this free thought trail, a a group of, of sites that are important to free thought? There was a huge amount of radical reform in central New York in the 19th and even into the early 20th century. Uh, In a sense, central New York played the same sort of role in the country then that Southern California played 
in the mid-20th century. You know, it was where all of the wild, radical things happened. And the reason for that was the Erie Canal. Uh, the Erie Canal opened up the West, uh, uh, brought people out into the interior of the country, uh, people of all different uh, nationalities and religions and personalities were rubbing elbows in a way that they wouldn't have uh, back in the cities back east. And the result was this cauldron of social reform. Uh, so you know, we, we, upper, we opened our version of the Ingersoll Museum in the birthplace in 1993, and it quickly became apparent that there was this wealth of underappreciated radical reform history, basically all of it within about 100 miles of our museum in Dresden. That was kind of our inspiration to begin the Free Thought Trail. Many, many people, you know, even, even among historians in New York, aren't completely aware just how much radical reform was going on. You know, everybody knows about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Everybody knows Frederick Douglass edited the North Star in Rochester. Uh, there's a lot more where that came from, and the Free Thought Trail tries to celebrate it. Mm -hmm. And the free thinkers sort of shared the turf with people who were thinkers of a different sort, like uh, evangelists and Mormons. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the area of central New York was often known as the burned over district because there had been so many revivals that uh, it hardly seemed that you could find enough energy for another. And it became the birthplace of new religions. Uh, the Mormon church uh, grew up in, uh, in Palmyra, got its beginnings. Uh, spiritualism began in the region. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists got their start. Uh, so this has been, uh, you know, political, political ferment, social ferment, religious ferment, uh, religious ferment from the freethinkers who pretty much rejected religion. And it was all happening within the watershed of the Erie Canal. It was a fascinating time. You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com or make out a check to Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Tom Flynn of the Center for Inquiry joins us, and we're discussing the Free Thought Trail in uh, upstate New York. Well, let's go to some other stops on the trail. What's located in Auburn, New York, to place it on the Free Thought Trail? Oh, let's see here. Auburn has a number of rather interesting things. Auburn's a place where Robert Ingersoll spoke on several occasions, and we have the theaters where he spoke, none of which are still standing anymore. There was a very interesting gentleman named Orestes Brownson, who was a journalist and uh, early in his career was an agnostic for several years, and during that period he was actually writing, he was actually editing a church newspaper, uh, in downtown Auburn. That didn't turn out really well. <laughs> and uh, uh, as it happens, Mr. Brownson went through some changes in his life and uh, lived out to a ripe old age as a conservative Catholic intellectual. But early on, he was a, a theological radical, and he did that in Auburn. Auburn was also the uh, location of a uh, convention of the New York State Women's Suffrage Association uh, that was held in 1904. Uh, speakers included Susan B. Anthony, uh, 
Anna Howard Shaw, who was uh, almost as prominent as Susan B. Anthony mm-hmm. during her lifetime. And we have the we re- record the sites, all of them now unmarked and occupied by something else. We have identified the uh, theater that was used, uh, the, the hotel where the delegates stayed, all of this sort of thing. So Auburn is... Uh, you know, Auburn is very typical of the cities on the trail in that it's got a variety of causes represented. I've been just naming names and asking you to talk about them. Maybe I should ask you to name a name. What are some of your favorite stops on the Free Thought Trail? One of my favorite stops is, again, in Casanova, where Ingersoll's mother is buried, and Casanova was also the site of a very famous abolitionist convention in 1850. Uh, it was held in a, a small liberal church and was so well attended that the next day they had to take over an apple orchard and have the event outside. Uh, Frederick Douglass was in attendance, uh, quite a number of other uh, prominent abolitionists, and uh, uh, Someone snapped a daguerreotype photograph of the participants, which is one of the earliest photographs we have of any abolitionist event, and uh, uh, quite often reproduced in histories of the movement. Mm. Uh, so that's that's certainly one of the areas okay. that uh, always found fascinating. Well, I'll I'll point out one now, and this was of interest to me because it answered a, a in a sense, a question I've had for a long time that doesn't have to do with free thinking. Uh, and that's the inclusion of Cicero on the, the free thought trail. And I believe you say, or you bring up a little bit about each of these communities, you say that Robert Harper named Cicero. And he was a land surveyor who gave classical names to places in central New York. And of course, I've sort of known that's true and it always seemed odd we we either have native american names for our settlements in uh, upstate new york or we might have some english names and people's names but we do have a lot of uh names of classical figures like cicero or uh, classical uh, places like syracuse you know i often hear people saying oh it's it must have been because the educated elite at the time they all had a classical education and they studied greek and latin and well no there was this one man who was a surveyor <laughs> and secretary of a land board who got to assign names to areas that had not yet been sold to settlers and he named he named I mean, dozens and dozens of place names across the state. In terms of the Free Thought Trail, what, what's uh, Cicero's uh, notoriety or notability? Matilda Jocelyn Gage may not be a familiar name, but would have been once upon a time. During the uh, heyday of the women's suffrage movement, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, Susan B. Anthony, and Matilda Jocelyn Gage uh, ran the movement, they were called the Triumvirate. So in her time, Gage was as well known as Anthony or Stanton. She was born in Cicero. Her father was uh, Hezekiah Joslin, was a physician and quite a social liberal. He raised Matilda and taught her as one would have a boy, which was very unusual in that, in those days. 
He taught her a good bit about medicine and had her follow him when he went on went on his rounds horseback making house calls. Hezekiah Joslin was very active in the abolition movement and also in the utopian movement. I mentioned those uh, two free-thinking utopian communes that uh, flourished and uh, flourished and famished between 1840 and 1843. Uh, Hezekiah Joslin was on the founding board of one of those. He's buried in a grave under quite a oppressive headstone uh, in Cicero, uh, right behind an RV dealer. History has not been kind to that cemetery. <laughs> no, I guess not. But Matilda went on to be the mother-in-law of L. Frank Baum, the man who created the Wizard of Oz. Oh, yes, very much so. And... Uh, uh, she spent her adulthood uh, principally in a, a lovely residence on Genesee Street in Fayetteville. Uh, that is now the site of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Center and Museum, uh, which is kind of the co-anchor of the Free Thought Trail along with the Ingersoll Museum. Gage was very influential. She was a, an enormous figure in the women's movement. Uh, and yes, also her son-in-law was L. Frank Baum and... Uh, uh, she taught him a great deal. And when you think about it, think back to The Wizard of Oz. Here's a children's book that came out near the turn of the 20th century. The movie adaptation came out in 1939. All of the powerful characters are women. The men mm -hmm. are sidekicks, they're buffoons. Uh, you know, Dorothy and the Good Witch and the Wicked Witch of the West, they are the mm -hmm. protagonists. They move the action forward. How heretical is that? And how about that scene where Todos looks behind the curtain and the great god, the Wizard of Oz, is exposed as a fraud? <laughs> and, there you go. Heresy in action. <laughs> and uh, Baum's uh, books, and he, he wrote he wrote dozens of them, were very woman-centric. The land of Oz was a land of plenty where... No one was in want where women ran almost everything. You know, just a, a delightful embodiment of the sort of radical values that Matilda Jocelyn Gage had taught her son-in-law, L. Frank Baum. They got along famously. Uh, Baum uh, was a uh, very successful experimenter in photography and took some beautiful pictures of the interior of the Gage home, which we still have. In fact, the mm -hmm. Gage home has restored the living room and the front parlor to conform to a famous bomb photograph showing how the uh, uh, room looked in the really? 1890s. And if you want to know more about Matilda Jocelyn Gage, we not too long ago had a guest on the podcast who wrote a, a biography or a look at her uh, contributions to the suffragist uh, cause another uh, famous name that uh, comes up in your uh, free thought trail is that of Mark Twain. Why is that? Twain married a girl from Elmira, Olivia Langdon, and she was the great love of his life. When she died young, he was uh, bereft and uh, uh, you know, kind of a bit bitter old widower for the rest of his life. Even while he continued to work as a humorist, but. Uh, during his years of married bliss, and that they certainly were, uh, he spent summers in Elmira uh, with her family. And her family had a, an eight-sided wooden study made for him uh, that they put up on a hilltop on their farm, and that's where he wrote 
parts of Huckleberry Finn, the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, what have you. And that uh, octagonal study is preserved today on the campus of Elmira College, which also has a substantial historical collection about Twain and a, a statue of the man. So he's very well remembered in Elmira, which was an area to which he had deep ties, and he's buried there also. Yeah, I was surprised at that, because to me, the, the site for Twain lore is in Hartford, but he's not buried there. Well, Elmira was where his heart is. And of course, if you go around the country, anywhere where Twain, Twain put down his feet, people try to claim him. Uh, <laughs> so there's, you know, there's zones of Mark Twain kitsch in Missouri. There's a lot of it in Hartford. Uh, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of memorials, high-minded and otherwise, in the Elmira area. Uh, I live in the greater Buffalo area, and uh, Twain spent about a year in Buffalo uh, editing one of our local newspapers, and pretty much everybody in Buffalo knows where that building used to be. Hmm. Let me ask you to uh, tell us something about Oswego on the Free Thought Trail. I, I believe this has to do uh, with the Underground Railroad. Yes, yes. Oswego was uh, a major, major lake port. And of course, it's on, on Lake Ontario, so uh, it was one of the principal gateways through which uh, escaping slaves uh, were taken across by boat and uh, uh, released in Canada. Uh, so speaking of fascinating people you don't hear too much about anymore, uh, Garrett Smith was one of the richest men in America. Uh, he became a radical philanthropist. He supported the abolition movement. He supported women's rights. And he lived in Peterborough, which is a tiny little town uh, well south of Oswego. And he had a great number of business interests in Oswego uh, as part of his business empire. That was where he did all of his shipping. And, in fact, Smith and his interests owned most of downtown Oswego. And uh, uh, Smith had a business agent there who uh, looked after his various investments and the companies he controlled, uh, but spent most of his time arranging shipments of uh, escaping slaves. And so it was a hugely important area. Uh, on the Underground Railroad, and a great deal of it has to do with uh, this legacy of uh, Garrett Smith, who was one of the most prominent members of Oswego's business community, even though he did not live there. And tell us a little bit about Seneca Falls. Well, Seneca Falls is very well known. It's the site of the 1848 Women's Rights Convention that uh, began the career of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and that uh, brought us the uh, Declaration of Sentiments, which became one of the uh, uh, founding documents of the suffrage movement. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's home is there. It's been uh, lovingly restored by the National Park Service. National Park Service also has restored the Wesleyan Chapel where the event was held. There's a museum on the site. There's a private museum, the Women's, National Women's Hall of Fame, that's based there, and a few more obscure places, too. Amelia Bloomer was a prominent feminist journalist, and she wrote about the Bloomer garment, this sort of reform dress that was a three-quarter length skirt over 
pantaloons, which was more practical for women to wear. Uh, Bloomer did not invent the garment. She just wrote about it. But uh, her her newspaper, kind of, we would say now that it went viral, and <laughs> reporters around the country started calling this reform costume the Bloomer costume, and it kind of stuck. Well, Amelia Bloomer lived in Seneca Falls, and one of her residences has been tentatively identified, and it still stands. We've been discussing the Free Thought Trail in upstate New York, a collection of historic sites. Our guest has been Tom Flynn from Amherst, New York, who is the Center for Inquiry's Vice President for Media and Director of Inquiry Media Productions. You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com or make out a check to Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.